1: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Dark Caracal is tracked back to its Beirut layer, Group 123 fishes in South Korean waters. Schneider Electric describes the zero-day Triton trisis exploited. The U.S. Congress will extend Section 702 Surveillance Authority for six years. Ghost Team infected apps are booted from the Play Store. Graham clearly drops by to talk security. And is there ever a good reason to write down a password? I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, January 19th, 2018. Add another healthcare sector incident to this week's news of unrelated incidents running from southern and eastern Norway to Indiana and Mississippi. Allscripts, the Chicago-based provider of electronic health record and practice management tools to some 2700 hospitals and 13,000 other care organizations, is investigating a ransomware infestation that appears to be affecting some of its applications. The issues came to light yesterday and are reported to be concentrated in applications the company's North Carolina data centers in Raleigh and Charlotte host. The company has taken down its professional EHR services and its electronic prescribing system until remediation can be accomplished. Other affected functions included regulatory reporting, clinical decision support, and various communications and payment apps. Allscript's support is working with clients during the disruption as the company works toward restoring full service. Cisco Talus reports on a new threat actor, Group 123. It's responsible for six identifiable campaigns, mounted during 2017 and continuing into this year. Golden Time, Evil New Year, Are You Happy? Free Milk, North Korean Human Rights, and Evil New Year 2018. The odd names allude to the campaign's distinctive fish bait. All except free milk targeted South Korean individuals and organizations. Free milk was international in scope. Talos is commendably reticent about attribution, but you don't have to be George Smiley to see that those look like the work of Pyongyang. The payloads in these campaigns included both remote-access Trojans and disk wipers. Schneider Electric offers a postmortem on Triton-Trisis industrial malware and the Zero Day it exploited. The company has determined that a vulnerability in its Tricon safety controller firmware permitted exploitation for privilege escalation, and that this enabled attackers to meddle with emergency shutdown systems during attacks on Middle Eastern systems believed to be operated by Saudi Aramco. Schneider said the Trice's Triton malware included a remote-access Trojan, a rat, that enabled attackers in principle not only to shut down plants but to induce unsafe conditions and damage difficult to replace equipment. The attacks of late 2017 were widely called game-changers because of their happily unrealized potential for catastrophic damage. Schneider is fast-tracking firmware updates to prevent a reoccurrence, but in the meantime, they recommend that users always enable Triconics cybersecurity features, always deploy safety systems on isolated networks, don't make them easily connected, and pay close attention to sound physical security of safety systems and networks. They also recommend other standard digital hygiene best practices. As the Davos meetings approach next week, thoughts of the participants turn to geopolitical tensions and the way those are increasingly manifested in cyberspace. Russian capabilities in hybrid warfare, of course, prompt considerable reflection and concern, and the North Korean operations we've mentioned are also well-known. But states that are neither large nor rogue can also be problematic. One of those, perhaps surprisingly, is Lebanon. The Electronic Frontier Foundation and security firm Lookout have issued a report describing an operation they're calling Dark Caracal, named after the long-eared wildcat endemic to North Africa and Southwest Asia. Dark Caracal is a long-running espionage campaign that has been affecting Android mobile devices since 2012. Lebanon's intelligence service, the General Directorate of General Security, GDGS, is the organization being held responsible for the campaign. Their targets included journalists and activists, military personnel, manufacturers, and financial institutions in more than 20 countries. Several things are noteworthy about the discovery. First, the GDGS seems to have inadvertently left the information they took exposed on an open server. This has been an issue for intelligence services and their contractors in some large and sophisticated countries as well, so OPSEC slips of this sort aren't by any means confined to the Levant. Second, no sophisticated malware was involved. The approach was as effective as it was direct. Dark caracal spread by phishing with baited software that looked like legitimate communication apps. The malware simply used the permissions users granted when they downloaded it. Third, and in some ways most interestingly, it seems the GDGS may have rented its espionage tools and infrastructure from some third party— the researchers say they found servers and malware associated with Dark Caracal they'd seen last year in an investigation of hackers apparently working on behalf of the Kazakh government. Whether Lebanon rented the stuff from Kazakhstan or vice versa, or whether both intelligence services are buying from some third-party vendor is unknown, but the appearances suggest a complicated market for espionage tools and infrastructure. In the U.S., the Senate yesterday voted to extend Section 702 surveillance authorization for another six years. This means the U.S. intelligence community will retain what it regards as an essential foreign intelligence collection authority. In news of other hacks, Google has kicked 53 apps out of the Play Store. The malware they were hosting was Ghost Team, which is designed to steal Facebook credentials. Trend Micro, the security firm who's published the results of their investigation into the malware, Link's internal signs point to a Vietnamese origin for the code. So far, they haven't observed any significant exploitation of Facebook credentials, but Trend Micro is working with both Google and Facebook to prevent a major outbreak. Finally, this is the week that began with some false alarms of missile launches issued by Hawaiian civil defense authorities and Japanese broadcaster NHK. The unrelated incidents were due to operator error, abetted perhaps by some questionable user interface design choices. So they weren't the work of hackers. But pictures from the Hawaiian Center have raised a lot of eyebrows in security circles, because pictures taken in July of workspaces in the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency command post showed an official posing in front of a monitor adorned with a sticky note that had a password written on it. There's been a great deal of contemptuous mockery, like the tweet that said, the deep state apparently uses password post it keeper. Or the Reddit wise crack, you have to write your password on the back of the post it note for it to be secure. So that's funny, sure, but motherboard offers a contrarian take on the matter. There are, the publication says, worse things you could do, like record your passwords in an unencrypted text file, or simply reuse the same one for all your accounts because it's easy to remember, like Frank's Red Hot, a password that gets even better if you change the A in Frank's to an at symbol. Those things would be bad. But as the motherboard writer points out, whether or not it's a good idea to write down your password depends on your threat model. If your workstation is in a publicly accessible place, then bad idea. But if it's in your home office, say, maybe not as bad as some other choices you could make. Especially if you've got a bad memory. Is it likelier someone's going to break into your house than it is that they'll realize you use Ninja1234 for everything? Still, a real password manager is your best bet, and you certainly don't want sticky notes around when the local TV reporter comes to visit. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, welcome back. Uh, Great to talk to you again. We saw some stories come by on Engadget and they were talking about uh, some research being done in China uh, with uh, quantum computing, quantum encryption, quantum cryptography uh, and claims that these uh, are unhackable. Uh, Sort of unpack it for us. What are we talking about here?
0: Yeah, I saw those articles, too. And uh, the first thing I want to say is that it's actually kind of always been interesting to me, and I don't quite understand why any anything related to quantum cryptography automatically gets a lot of press coverage. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, uh, quantum cryptography is interesting, but I think uh, it's, a, it's kind of a, got a niche use case. Um, but nevertheless, in these particular articles, what they were talking about was a, a new uh, network for quantum encryption and quantum communication, that had been set up by the uh, Chinese, and that basically had, had beat uh, some previous records in terms of the distance over which the communication was going and uh, perhaps also at the rate at which the communication was being done.
1: And when they say unhackable, they they always put it in, in scare quotes, you know, is, is that is that a reasonable uh, uh, thing to say, or is it merely a factor that, you know, someday a clever human might come up with a way to crack any type of cryptography?
0: Well, you always have to take these things with a grain of salt. Uh, what they are referring to there is the fact that the uh, there is a mathematical proof that the uh, underlying protocol, the underlying quantum mechanical protocol actually cannot be hacked. And, and not only can it not be hacked uh, by a classical computer, it can't even be hacked by a quantum computer should one come along in the future. And that's something that—that's a guarantee that we don't have for the other kind of cryptography that we use in the internet. Uh, those kind of systems, uh, number one, rely on assumptions, and number two, can potentially be cracked with enough computational power. And so that's what they mean when they say unhackable. Now, having said that, of course, you know what you realize is that in practice, uh, most systems that get broken are broken not because of the cryptography, but by things surrounding the cryptography, by the implementation, by user error. Uh, by an attacker, maybe hacking the physical devices being used for the communication. So, you know, you, you have to take the unhackable there with a, with a bit of a grain of salt. But um, nevertheless, it is kind of nice that these systems come along with some kind of a proof that at least the underlying protocol itself is not going to be the point of failure.
1: And is this something that's still off on the horizon? It's, it's merely at the research stage or are there practical uses uh, on the way for this?
0: Uh, it's kind of right at the borderline. I, I do think that uh, it, it will remain a niche technology that will only be applicable in certain scenarios. But I think it's at the point now where where people are talking about using it or, or even using it in very specific scenarios. And so it is starting to move uh, from the research lab into limited uh, use.
1: All right. Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. My guest today is Graham Cluley. He's a popular voice in the cybersecurity world through his own website, grahamcluli.com, and as co host of the Smashing Security podcast with Carol Terrio. He's a popular keynote speaker and a regular on broadcast media around the world. I began our conversation by asking him for a status update when it comes to cybersecurity. You know, I like to be upbeat about these things.
2: I, l- I like to think positively. And I think if, if we're going to put some positive spin on this, by now, January 2018, We can assume that all of us have had our identity stolen at some point or another to some extent or another via one of these huge breaches so in a way that's good news because now we're aware of identity theft maybe we're even aware of some of the steps we need to take in order to make sure that funds aren't beginning to disappear from our wallets as well um so it's almost like there's been so much bad news and so many bad experiences that we're a little bit more um battle Uh, worn as a result. And so we've been in the fight for a while. And so we're better prepared from that point of view. But other than that, I don't really see anything that great and positive on the horizon. I think we're going to see another year of enormous vulnerabilities, huge data breaches and shocking privacy scares. And uh, I suspect it's going to be that way for many, many years to come.
1: What do you suppose GDPR is going to do in terms of having an effect globally? Well, it's already had an effect,
2: um, certainly in Europe, of course, where uh, companies have really been on the ball and have uh, been putting measures in place for some time to get themselves prepared for it. And I think uh, in the case multinationally, uh, some companies outside of Europe have simply not realized that this also affects them. Mm. And if they have any customers in Europe, they need to make changes maybe to their systems and, and appreciate uh that potentially there could be some very, very large fines coming along. I'm somewhat sceptical as to whether we are going to see this really enormous fines and damages um, imposed upon companies that uh, the law provides for um, when this comes round. Um, I suspect it's more being used to scare people. But for many companies, this has been an enormous upheaval. But if it does wake up any companies... A little bit more seriously and wake up the board and the C level executives to the threats which are out there then that that has to be good news because for too long too many companies have really had a slipshod approach to protecting their customers data and that has to change because we are putting our trust in these online businesses and indeed non-online as well uh, and yet time and time again they're proving themselves to be frankly incompetent um at protecting our information I'm more concerned, actually, that many companies and many individuals these days are almost accepting data breaches as a fact of life and thinking, oh, well, what could we have done? Or they're rolling out the age old excuse of, oh, well, it must. It was a highly sophisticated attack (laughs) using zero mysterious zero day vulnerabilities. And you know what? It could well have been uh, state sponsored as well, in which case it's like, oh, well, that's all right that you got hacked. Because clearly there's nothing you can do. And I, I get fed up with companies using those kind of excuses and try and wiggle their way out of it. I would really love to see consumers voting with their wallets and actually punishing the companies who do suffer these data breaches by no longer doing business with them. But I know from my own human experience that it's a hassle changing providers or suppliers. It's a hassle. If you have a relationship with a company and they're providing you with a service and they suffer a data breach, it's quite a nuisance changing your supplier, isn't it? Mm. It's got it, or moving your account. And in some particular cases, you simply can't do it. If it's a government agency or if it's the National Health Service or some of that, there, there's no other choice. You have to do business with them effectively. You have to entrust them with your data. And, you know, what, what more can you do? But I certainly for the commercial data breaches, I would love to see users really making their opinions felt strongly about this. And not just for that week, the initial week after the breach is exposed, but actually remember it and tell their friends, never deal with XYZ company again because they treated us so badly a year ago.
1: Yeah, I wonder if we're going to see a time where companies use security as a feature, you know, similarly to the way, for example, that, you know, Volvo uh, made uh, yes. a lot, you know, that, where they sold safety. When no one else was making the point of safety, Volvo made that a selling point. And it doesn't seem like we've seen that yet with security, but it strikes me that that could be an area where someone could uh, try to have a competitive advantage. It, it would be nice, wouldn't
2: it? I mean, it, I think for most people, unfortunately, security simply isn't sexy. I mean, you look at the huge growth we'd seen in Internet of Things devices, you know, every device imaginable these days has got the internet connected to it. Um, and it's it's simply another feature which they can put on the side of the box and say, it's not just a toothbrush, it's a toothbrush which can connect to the World Wide Web. And people <laughs> say, oh, yes, I'd like one of those. But that's the thing which makes them choose that particular toothbrush on Amazon, rather than this is a really secure toothbrush, which can never be connected to the internet and doesn't require internet updates for when a security vulnerability is found. It simply isn't sexy enough. The only company which I've really seen um, making a bit of a stand on this is, uh, and it's not so much about security, it's more about privacy, is Apple, Mm. which has acted differently from some of the other technology companies out there and said, look, we're not going to make money out of you by collecting your data and potentially putting you at risk that way or displaying ads everywhere and Again, maybe exposing you to risk. We're going to make money by charging you a heck of a lot of money when you buy our shiny gadget. And so they charge more than most people charge for their particular gadget. But what they do is they say, that's going to be it. Once you've done that, that's how we're going to make you money from you. And maybe we'll make some more money from having you in the ecosystem and you buy things in the app store. But we're not going to be selling your data. And I like that they appear to have that attitude. Now, having said that, they still have security vulnerabilities and sure. sometimes really bad ones, um, but they do appear to have adopted that as a philosophy. And of course, that's sometimes got them into trouble with governments um, because they've they've been so hot on privacy and locking down their phones, for instance.
1: Do you have any advice for those people who are considering a career in cybersecurity in terms of pathways they should take, or uh, classes or certifications? What's your take on all that?
2: You know, I I do get asked this quite a lot, and I I feel incredibly underqualified because I don't have any computer security qualifications. I fell into this industry 25-odd years ago completely by accident. Uh, I I, I just think, I I have no idea. The world has changed so much in 25 years. I haven't gone to a job interview Mm. in 25 years either. What I would say to people is try and keep on the right side, you know, don't be tempted to do naughty things just because they're possible. And, uh, you know, so if you, if you go into, for instance, if you're interested in penetration testing, make sure that you have the permission of the company uh, whose systems you're testing or you're looking for vulnerabilities. So make sure you don't blot your copybook from that point of view because it may impact your future career. But the big resource which I would really recommend, which wasn't available to me 25 years ago, are sites like Twitter. Because there you can begin to converse and join in the conversations with so many really brilliant security researchers. There are fantastic conferences around the world as well. You may be a sides or something like that in your area, uh, which is fairly easy to get to, where you can meet some of these people, form relationships and learn a huge amount. The opportunities are out there to gather information, to join in on forums, to exchange expertise, to learn, to watch YouTube videos, um, to get really enthusiastic about this. But, you know, keep your nose clean. Don't do anything silly, which your future self might regret.
1: All right. Graham Cluley, thanks for joining us. His website is GrahamCluley.com. And of course, the podcast is Smashing Security. If you haven't checked it out, please do. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) Thank you very much. We'll have an extended version of my conversation with Graham Cluley for our Patreon subscribers. You can learn about that at patreon.com/slash the Cyberwire. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at the And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa Smart Speaker too. The CyberWire Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.